but I will begin by thanking the absent director of the Rashawn Center, who will be coming any minute. Um, this is, I think, about the sixth or seventh year for citizenship, and uh, we're delighted to still have the support of Rick Herman. Uh, this year there will be four talks. Um, I'll do it back to front. So the last talk will be Rogers Brubaker, the sociologist from UCLA, will be coming in. Uh, it will be two philosophers, Susan Wolf and Christopher Bonich from North Carolina and Stanford. And today's speaker, uh, as you know, we'll keep this nice and short. I assume you all know who Sue Stokes is. Uh, Susan is uh, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Yale. And the current title is <laughs> Studying Electoral, Electoral Clientelism, Recent Advances and Persistent Problems. Professor Stokes, thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Um, I Actually, I think you should thank me for coming because I'm a person who grew up in the land of Bo Schembechler. And um, it's hard for me to come here and not think Woody Hayes, but this is proof that even ancient hatreds can be overcome. As democracy has arrived in many developing countries around the world, we find that political parties often compete in elections not by offering public programs or explaining to voters how well they performed as incumbents or even appealing to people's identities uh, uh, or, or, or um, affinities. Instead, some parties put their money and energy into distributing bags of rice, eyeglasses, cash, building materials um, in the limiting case, the sort of most expensive per cap item that I've run across, automatic washing machines uh, distributed by the PRI in Mexico, if one's willing to go even more far, far afield into authoritarian elections, we have um, Robert Mugabe in the 2008 elections in Zimbabwe reportedly distributing Mer Mercedes-Benzes, although that was to fellow military um, officials, so probably a, a different kind of logic. In the run-up to elections in, in Lebanon last summer, vote buying uh, was reportedly financed by outside parties, um, uh, Iran, uh, Hezbollah, and um, the Lebanese parties were, were reportedly offering um, sums on average around $800 per vote, and they were also sponsoring the return air tickets of expats living abroad to, to come vote. So you can see that sometimes these strategies become rather, rather expensive. Now, the strategies, these strategies are often referred to with terms like clientelism, patronage, vote buying, more dispassionately distributive politics. Um, and in today's talk, I'm going to start by offering a conceptual map to sort of sort through terms, but more importantly, concepts um, that map onto real world strategies, which are in some ways similar and in some ways different. And we, my collaborators and I have put some time and effort into this, this work of sort of conceptual cl clarification because we became aware that social scientists throw these terms around and we really don't know what, what we mean by the difference between, say, vote buying and patronage um, or distributive politics. Um, but we also, we also need this con conceptual clarification for, for reasons having to do with, with research objectives. I will talk about conceptual clarification and then I'm going to... Uh, discuss recent developments in the theory of, let's call it materialist uh, strategies of, of, uh, for getting electoral support. 
And then I'll talk about evidence from research that my collaborators and I have been doing in different parts of Latin America. But let me, uh, sort of truth in advertising, the punchline of this talk is we have increasingly refined and elegant theories of clientelism, um, but at this point, reality has not had the good you know, graciousness to, to hook up to our theories. So there's a real tension between, I think, increasingly refined theoretical work on the one hand and what the evidence seems to be telling us on the other. So at the end of the talk, I'll say a few words about w where we think we should be going with the, the, the theoretical, um, additional theoretical work and perhaps issues of measurement error um, that, can, that can help to resolve this tension. Let me say that the research that I'm going to be talking about um, is a collaborative project um, with Thad Dunning, a colleague of mine at, at Yale, um, and also with Valeria Brusco and Marcelo Nazareno, both of whom are social scientists at the National University of Córdoba in, in Argentina. Now, I mentioned a moment ago um, that scholars use a kind of dizzying array of terms to talk about um, material electoral strategies. Um, terms like clientelism, patronage, vote-buying, distributive politics, machine politics, pork-barrel politics, among others. What's more, in any democracy, we expect political parties to present programs that offer voters improvement in their material well-being. Um, they might offer to lower taxes or to give uh, uh, better access to health care. Um, and so the question is, arises, is there any difference between, say, a British party offering to improve the National Health Service um, and the Mexican PRI, PRI giving out washing machines? Is there any difference between a, an American party, a U.S. party, offering to lower taxes and a Bulgarian political party giving out the, the bottoms of pressure cookers before an election and then waiting to see if they win and then giving out the top of pressure cookers? Um, now, one's hunch is that in some, these are in some, there's some continuity among these different kinds of strategies, but also important differences. So let me offer a conceptual scheme. Start to sort of demonstrate that we're not utter Philistines by recognizing that not all electoral mobilization is about, um, is about the offering of material resources. Obviously, um, parties offer uh, or, or make appeals that are based on identities, symbols, um, uh, affinities, and the like. Um, but if we shift down, so what I'm doing here is moving sequentially down a branching diagram, and this is the, the, the right-hand side of the diagram. Um, to try to win elections, office seekers um, often use material, uh, offer material resources to, to garner electoral support. Um, and um, the crucial distinction here is between what I call programmatic strategies and non-programmatic strategies. Both of them entail material inducements, in both, parties try to get voters to support them by offering to improve or protect voters' material well-being. To be programmatic, the proffering of such inducements must follow three steps. First, a public debate must take place about the objectives of the, of the distributive program. This debate typically takes place initially during election campaigns and after elections among elected officials and it's available through the press to a, a broader public. 
highly interested organizations and even individuals may indeed contribute to this debate. The second step sort of defining programmatic distributive schemes is that whichever political force prevails in elections and in the legislative process formulates public policy and the codified objectives of this policy have to coincide in some loose sense at least with those enunciated in campaigns and in the debates uh, uh, specifically by the prevailing political forces. The final step is that the policy that's implemented um, must be implemented in such a way that the, that the announced and codified objectives guide the actual distribution of the benefit or the resource. So it's not hard to imagine how each of these steps can be violated. Distributive schemes may be imposed with no prior public discussion, or the criteria of distribution um, of programs that have attracted public debate may be modified in important ways um, outside of the public view. Um, earmarks, rifle shots in the American context and the U.S. context are familiar ways in which this, this happens. <clears throat> Violations of the third step um, are when there's a lack of fit between the official criteria of distribution and, and actual distribution as it happens on the ground. So consider an unemployment insurance program that stipulates that unemployed people who actively seek work um, or are in job training programs are eligible to draw benefits. So you might think about um, trying to explain variation in who gets and who doesn't get unemployment insurance by estimating an, a regression model in which the controls are the criteria, the official criteria of the program. You control for unemployment status or employment status, um, job training, um, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and the like. And all of the variation should be explained by those controls. If being a loyal member of the political party um, helps explain variation in whether you get or don't get unemployment insurance, or if living in a district in which the ruling party just barely lost the last election or just barely won the, the last election helps explain that variation, then we're in the world of non-programmatic politics because of the violation of the third condition that I mentioned a moment ago. So indeed, most of the research into um, what's called distributive politics in the United States that uses aggregate um, uh, data um, uses exactly this kind of strategy. If you, some of you may be familiar with research by Levitt and, and Snyder and Salva Hare, um, in which they basically carry out that kind of exercise. Look at some federal program, um, control for the criteria that are supposed to explain distribution of the program, um, not all of the variation tends to, depending on the program, not all the variation is explained by those, those, those uh, uh, variables, um, but, say, marginality of the district or, um, uh, or sort of, say, um, number, percentage of Democratic voters in a district in a period in which the Congress was, was uh, controlled by Democrats uh, adds additional purchase on how benefits get distributed, then we're in the world of, of non-programmatic politics. Now, a common mistake is to equate programmatic policies with public goods and non-programmatic ones with redistributive schemes aimed at individuals. But we've just seen that a targeted program, an individually targeted program, can be either programmatic or non-programmatic, according to the definition that I'm, that I'm uh, proposing. And if we equate programmatic distribution with public goods, 
we lose a sense of the difference between sort of um, legitimate public good distribution, if you like, and pork barrel politics, as that term is understood in this country. Now, my emphasis on publicity as distinguishing programmatic from non-programmatic material distributions echoes legal theories of what constitutes legitimate and illegitimate electorally driven distributions. Um, so in the U.S., um, and the crucial uh, Supreme Court decision was a 1982 decision in Brown versus Hartledge, which was a case in which a, a candidate for office, a challenger for office in, um, in Kentucky, um, made a, a, an offer to, if he was elected, he was going to lower his salary by quite a bit. The um, incumbent um, complained, said that this was an instance of vote buying and violated state um, anti-trafficking, anti-vote trafficking laws. It went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that, that there was no merit to that, to that claim um, and that this was indeed a, a kind of a legitimate um, campaign claim and the court the, the protected by First Amendment, uh, by the First Amendment. The court um, wrote in its unanimous opinion, the fact that some voters may find their self-interest reflected in a candidate's commitment does not place that commitment beyond the reach of the First Amendment. We have never insisted that the franchise be exercised without taint of individual benefit. Indeed, our tradition of political pluralism is partly predicated on the expectation that voters will pursue their individual good through the political process. And that the summation of these individual pursuits will further the collective welfare. So long as the hope for personal benefit is to be achieved through the normal processes of government and not through some private arrangement, it has always been and remains a reputable basis upon which to cast one's ballot. Now, turning to non-programmatic distributions, these are ones um, in which that, that are not consistent with the definition I gave earlier. Um, to, just to repeat that the objectives of, of are, are subject to public debate, the, of the objectives in the public debate shape the official criteria of distribution, and the official criteria shape actual distribution. There may be no public debate um, and publicly enunciated reasons for justifying them. Um, earmarks, again, is an is a, uh, obvious example. Or the codified criteria for distribution may not describe how, they, how goods are, event, are actually distributed. Um, now, um, not all non-programmatic strategies are the same. This branch of the diagram, so again, we're proceeding down our right-hand side of the diagram. This branch distinguishes between situations in which political operatives distribute resources with or without bias. Note that these branches, in, both of them involve discretion. Discretion distinguishes these distributive strategies from programmatic public policies in which distributive criteria are explicitly codified and the agents of the state generally um, steer clear of personal discretion to either increase or decrease rewards. This is sort of your cold, distant, Weberian state that carries off programmatic distributions. Here we're in a, a world of, of discretion. Um, and, and decision-making by political actors. But discretion is not always identical to bias. In the left-hand side of the third branch, local political operatives help constituents to solve problems, 
Um, they intercede on their behalf to obtain resources from higher levels of the state. They make contact officials to deal with emergencies and the like. Politicians usually insist uh, that they offer such assistance without regard for the electoral sympathies or identities of the supplicant. Um, the only criteria they'll tell you that they use is uh, for spending their time and effort on behalf of constituents is the constituents' need. Now, Sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not true. To the extent that, the, that this account is accurate, I call this form of distribution constituency service. By generating goodwill among constituents who receive assistance and by allowing the politician to build a reputation for fairness and competence, constituency service is probably an effective electoral strategy. Obviously, additional criteria may enter the politician's calculations, such as the electoral responsiveness of the particular constituent or her past loyalty. These criteria can be thought of as bias. When bias guides the offers of personal help, we're on the right-hand side of this branch, not in constituency service. So progressing now down this right-hand branch... Among non-programmatic biased distributive schemes, the last important distinction is between those that entail an implicit quid pro quo agreement between the voter and the party and those in which there is no quid pro quo. Um, so the quid pro quo is I give you access to the anti-poverty program, you vote for my party. I um, intercede on your behalf in a situation of emergency, you render political support, you turn out for elections and presumably vote for, for, for my party. Um, now, when there is no quid pro quo, so over here on the, the left-hand bottom side, this um, is a, in deference to common usage in the, in, the, in the U.S. literature, I'm calling this distributive politics. And we have lots of, of of examples and evidence of this from, from the U.S. as well as from other advanced democracies, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the distinction between the non-quid pro quo situation and the quid pro quo situation maps onto a very important difference in the context of distributive schemes, having to do with the structure of the party organizations that carry them out. In settings in which a quid pro quo understanding is absent, so on the left-hand side of this last branch, um, these are typically advanced democracies in which parties, are, political parties, are no longer deeply embedded in social networks of constituents. Instead, these parties are socially distant from their from voters. Um, so this is distributive politics. The logic of um, distributive politics is... Um, similar to that of programmatic distribution, either public or, ta or targeted, the intention of parties, governments, and candidates is to deploy programmatic distribution uh, it, in order to curry goodwill among beneficiaries. I should say who, de who deploy programmatic distribution is to curry goodwill among beneficiaries, goodwill that then translates into electoral support. But under distributive politics, one or more of the, of the steps sketched earlier, from public debate to official criteria to actual distribution, is, is violated. Um, on the bottom right-hand branch, um, in today's new democracies or advanced democracies in the, in the past, political parties are intimately linked um, to the social networks of constituents. 
These are parties as machines. They're highly decentralized organizations that rely on armies of local brokers and intermediaries who live among the people whom they're responsible for monitoring and for mobilizing. These politicians and brokers are deeply embedded in social networks. Indeed, their daily activities uh, help to construct and keep alive these networks. Their social proximity to voters allows them to gather information about who votes and, and whom they're likely to have voted for. Even assuming the secret ballot, they can often make reasonably accurate inferences about individual voting patterns. Um, and I call the distributive strategies of party machines clientelism. So there also are some subcategories of clientelism that I'll just mention briefly. Um, one is what we're calling the manipulation of public policies. This is when governments, the ruling party or the government, channels resources from public programs in ways that violate their official criteria. So this is just like distributive politics on the other side of the, this branch, but with these party machines carrying it out and with a kind of quid pro quo understanding with voters. Um, we also have vote buying, which is... Um, analytically distinct in that it isn't restricted to incumbents. So parties that have resources that they can um, deploy even when they're in opposition, um, when they do that, that, that's, that is vote buying. Um, and then finally, we, we find it useful to distinguish pa patronage, which is the exchange of public employment for electoral support. And the difference here is that public employment is, entails a kind of stability of employment and a, and a flow of income over time. And so it's, it's highly valued and tends to get distributed in an intra-party manner. So this goes to party militants rather than to individual voters. And the militants are expected not just to vote for the party or to turn out to vote themselves, but to sort of harvest votes for the, for the party. So let me just um, give you this, this whole scheme. We have um, at the top uh, electoral strategies. They can be symbolic or they can involve material resources. Crucial distinction, they can be programmatic or non-programmatic. Um, non-programmatic uh, 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 schemes can involve uh, bias, distribution or, uh, bias distribution or unbiased distribution. Um, when it's unbiased, we call this constituency service. Um, when it's biased, it uh, matters whether there's an implicit quid pro quo understanding between the party and the voter, and behind that, the nature of the, the party organization that carries out the distribution, um, whereas on the right-hand side here, we have clientelism, which is um, non-programmatic bias distribution in which a machine is involved, and therefore there is a kind of quid pro quo understanding. So to make this more concrete, I'm not going to go into detail here, but it can be useful to think about literatures that attach to these different categories um, of uh, uh, conceptual categories. So, for instance, um, a good example of kind of programmatic distribution would be Hibbs, Doug Hibbs' work on the American political economy. You could talk about uh, vast literatures in European social democracy that would fit, um, fit this kind of uh, uh, research and behind the, the kind of reality that they're describing constituency service, um, Fenno's classic home style, much of what he describes there really seems to be unbiased um, uh, efforts on behalf of constituents, um, not exclusively so, but, but certainly largely so. Um, when we get into distributive politics, I mentioned already Levitt Snyder, Ansel Behar has done some of this research. Um, uh, there was a nice paper, um, of course I'm forgetting the author, that was 
uh, job talk paper a couple years ago about um, FEMA um, in the United States and the, the uh, a kind of discriminatory dis distribu distribution of FEMA goods. Um, there's, there are literatures from outside the United States, from other advanced democracies, a lot of literature from Japan on distributive politics. Um, we even There's a nice study of Swedish distributive politics. There's sort of one instance apparently in, in recent memory of such, but it's nicely analyzed in a, in a paper that um, uh, sort of surprised me when I saw it. I thought Sweden would be free of such things, but not so. Um, and when we get over to the, to the right-hand bottom part of this diagram, this is where the research that I'm going to be describing now really falls in, and there is a, quite a bit of literature, um, and, and I think new, exciting literature, um, some of it that I've been involved with, a lot of it that has been, been carried out by other scholars working um, elsewhere in the world, but also in Latin America as well. Okay. Um, so let me just return very briefly to the conceptual scheme and make a claim that there is more than a kind of hair splitting going on here, that, that a, a good conceptual scheme, uh, you know, at the very minimum allows us to sort out what we mean when we throw around these terms, but, beyond, but well beyond that um, focuses our causal questions in more precise ways. So, uh, you know, there is a fair amount of... Um, research and, and kind of reflection uh, in uh, the law review literature on sort of what this distinction is, um, what makes for the difference between programmatic and non -pro what I'm calling programmatic and non-programmatic um, politics and distrib distribution. And you got a little flavor of that from the Supreme Court decision that I cited. Um, but there are other questions that we should really be asking. So for instance, um, to what ex uh, why do we see um, distributive politics in some advanced democracies and much less of it in others? Um, so if part of the answer to the question of why we have programmatic politics in some places and non-programmatic politics in another has to do with economic development, which I think will be fairly intuitive to you, economic development which makes clientelism more expensive, and also makes the, 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 the sustenance of political machines less easy to carry off. Um, that's all fine and good, but then why do we have in countries that are very wealthy, some of them still have a, a good deal of distributive politics, Japan, the United States, others much less of it. Um, as you can imagine, there are answers that are offered by scholars out there to that question, but I don't think they're, that, that's, a, that's a question that's been entirely um, it hasn't been posed enough and it hasn't been answered in an entirely satisfactory way. Um, the conceptual scheme also, I think, sharpens our normative democratic uh, uh, reflections. Um, so there's a body of legal decisions and law review scholarship that I mentioned that tries to make analytical sense of a distinction between programmatic distribution as legitimate and vote buying as not legitimate. Um, but what about distributive politics versus clientelism? Um, it seems at first glance as though a distributive, distributive scheme of biased distribution with, with no quid pro quo is somehow less um, uh, you know, preferable or not, not as bad as a distributive scheme that does enforce a quid pro quo. Um, that's my hunch about it. So in other words, if we sort of ask the question, how do we, 
how does dem normative democratic theory draw a line and, and, and evaluate relatively these two phenomena? Um, we, it's a question that hasn't been asked very frequently, and I think putting the conceptual scheme together asks, poses that question naturally. Um, I would sort of offer that an answer may have to do with um, questions of the autonomy of voters, their capac the capacity of elections to generate information about the full distribution of voters' collective preferences. Um, under clientelist schemes, a segment of the electorate tends to have its voice muted um, because all their vote is saying is that they're willing to sell it. Um, and, uh, and therefore, there's, there's more violence done to democratic norms, if you will, under um, clientelism than under distributive politics. Um, but this is kind of open terrain. Just to give one more sense of some of the normative complexities here, what if parties are using material resources not to generate votes but to generate turnout? Um, would we feel the same way about our comparison, say, of clientelism and distributive politics? Clientelism has more teeth to bring people out to vote, um, whereas distributive politics relies on um, generating goodwill, which can translate, as I said before, into support for the party, but also into uh, co overcoming co the costs of participating in, in elections and can yield high, uh, uh, higher turnout. Okay. Um, so that's the first part of the talk where I'm dealing with our conceptual scheme. Let me talk now for a little bit about evolving theoretical um, uh, arguments about clientelism. So now I'm really looking at the bottom right-hand side of this, um, of this uh, uh, figure. Now, much of the theorizing here has focused very sharply on um, how clientelism and distributive politics work in the following sense. When a clientelist party goes out looking for votes, does it target its strong supporters or does it target swing voters? Um, and our it's, intuitions, I think, go in sort of different directions on this. A kind of strong intuition that many of you might have is that the uh, the party does uses its resources most effectively when it targets the most responsive voters, which would be relatively indifferent or swing voters, um, voters who already. Uh, support the party will be relatively unresponsive to individual inducements because they will vote for the party anyway, and opponents of the party will be unresponsive because a, a small bribe will not overcome their opposition. <clears throat> On the other hand, it feels intuitive, I think as well, that when it comes time to dole out goodies, a party's core supporters come first. And this uh, this question, this issue, has divided theorists of distributive politics. Um, why does it matter? Uh, I think it matters. I think we've been sort of very focused, perhaps obsessed about it, because if we can't answer this question, I think we don't feel that we understand how clientelism works or how distributive politics works in some basic way. So some of you will be familiar with a, a, a kind of recent history of theoretical models of distributive politics. Lindbeck and Weibel um, have a, a, a highly theoretical paper that um, basically produces a kind of swing voter logic. Um, uh, Cox and McCubbins have a, a sort of response paper that says, we don't think it works that way. We think that, um, that parties give things out to their core supporters, and then they sort of work backward from that intuition to a, a model that involves parties being risk-averse um, about 
um, voters whose, whose variance in response to, to, to goodies will be, will be high, and so they prefer core supporters where the variance in their responses will be low. Um, kind of classic contribution by Avinash Dixit and John Londrigan um, produces, is a, is a nice kind of synth- synthesis of those two perspectives. Um, they have a kind of swing voter case and a core voter case. The swing voter case is one that looks sort of like the modern distant political parties, um, that um, send goodies to swing voters. The core case is one in which one of the parties has a particularly intimate relationship with one group of constituents, um, which in their explanation allows that party, that machine, to distribute goods more efficiently. That they, they use the metaphor of the leaky bucket, and the leaky bucket leaks less quickly when a party is distributing to a specific set of core supporters, and therefore, under those conditions, you will find this core result. I published a paper a few years ago that went, in a sense, a step step further in the swing voter direction, um, showing that even voters who, on ideological grounds, are weakly opposed to the the political machine will be targets of support. So sort of swing voters plus mild opponents should be the ones who are responsive to these particularistic distributions um, and, uh, and, and not the core supporters or opponents, for that matter, stronger opponents. Now, the empirical literature is all over the place. It doesn't help sort this out at all. We have all kinds of findings that go in different directions from different parts of the world. Um, swing voter result from Sweden, Albania, Peru, um, sometimes the U.S., and sometimes Argentina. We get core results in studies of other studies of the U.S., other studies of Argentina, um, I sometimes think that the U.S. is a core voter case when studied by MIT and Chicago political economists swing otherwise. Um, And we get both core and swing results in studies of Australia, Mexico, and India. Um, So this does not help clear the fog at all. Um, Recently, there's been a new theoretical argument put forth that is very interesting, um, which sort of says that the objective of parties in doling out material resources is not to persuade voters to vote for for their party, but rather to turn voters out to get them to to overcome their propensity toward abstention and to get them to the polls. This is a very intuitive kind of idea for in in, in U.S. politics. Um, So a nice study by Simeon Nichter um, that reanalyzed some of the data I had gathered from Argentina and kind of tweaked a model that I had presented and came up with a a nice... um, uh, story in which um, party machines that are trying to turn out voters will target their core their core constituents. Um, so the the problem with the Nictor innovation is that the, so the older literature assumed full turnout, nobody abstained, and it got a swing voter often got a swing voter result. The Nictor innovation um, got a core voter result by assuming that all voters are sort of on the fence as regarding whether they're going to turn out to vote. So in a sense, the Nictor contribution didn't go far enough. It replaced a kind of very strained picture of voters as always turning out to vote with, I think, equally strained picture of voters as being equally uh, uh, prone to turn out to vote or not. Um, in response to that model, my colleague Thad Dunning and I have produced an, a, a new model in which we um, try to shift from a kind of one-dimensional 
version of voters as only differing on their ideological predispositions to two-dimensional voters who are different both in their ideological predispositions and in their propensity to turn out to vote. Um, And put those two things together to drive um, more nuanced results in which sometimes parties will go after core supporters and sometimes after swing supporters. So let me just um, quickly go through some of the elements of this model. I'm not going to go into this in great detail. The basic setup, voters, as I've mentioned, voter, differ on two dimensions. One is their propensity to, to turn out to vote or to abstain. We call voters who will always turn out to vote certain voters, and we call voters who may not turn out and, and, and uh, whose turnout is, is much more likely under conditions of a reward, um, potential voters. Um, voters are also have ideological inclinations. They're, they are, can, can be located on a single unidimensional ideological scale, which you can also think of as a kind of um, a dimension having to do with party affinities. Um, and um, two parties compete. Um, they, one of them is a clientelistic party and the other is not. And there are different ways that you can interpret that assumption. Um, could be that um, that one of the, that what we're talking about here is um, manipulation of public policy, so it requires incumbency, and there's only one incumbent. Could be that for historical reasons, there's only one party that sort of has the wherewithal organizationally to carry off machine politics. Um, but in any case, we, like everybody else, make the assumption that this this is a sort of a one-sided clientelistic competition, and obviously things would change if one assumed two-sided clientelistic competition. Um, there are information assumptions. Um, the, the machine has information about voters. It knows their um, turnout fully. It can fully observe whether some whether people have gone to vote at the individual level, and it can partially observe their vote their vote choice. The um, utilities that certain voters receive from voting for the clientless party and the and and the non-clientless party, respectively. So this is what they get from the cli- voting for the clientless party. Um, and this is what they get for voting for the non-clientless party, so I'm just using X1 and X sub 2 to uh, indicate those two parties. Um, in both cases, their utility decreases in their ideological distance from the party, and the, dif- the difference between these two is this B term, which represents the value of the targeted resource that the clientless party gives them. So this is the bag of rice, the building materials, the special favor that is done um, for the voter. In contrast, the utility function of the, that was the certain voter. This now is the potential voter, the person who may or may not turn out to vote. Um, and here, the, the difference is that there's a, a positive cost for voting represented by C. And the party's problem is to choose a benefit level for certain and potential voters subject to a budget constraint that maximizes its vote differential over its opponent. Um, So we already know that in a repeated game between certain voters, ones who will always turn out to vote, and clientelistic parties where they play a grim trigger strategy, there's a a vote-buying equilibrium in which the party buys the votes of people who are ideologically indifferent from the two parties or even, as I mentioned earlier, weakly opposed to the clientelist party. Um, Their weak opposition can be offset by by a payment, by that B term. 
The question is, since there are both certain and potential voters in the electorate, how much of its limited budget will the clientelist party allocate to vote buying and how much to turnout buying in order to maximize its vote differential over the other party? And among each type, um, that is certain and potential types of voters, will the party target core or swing voters? So let me just mention the results. Um, first, these are just theoretical results. First, we find that under general conditions, parties do buy votes um, and they buy turnout. They do both things. Regarding whom they target, what kind of voters, we find that among certain voters, the party, that is voters who are certain to turn out, the party will begin by targeting swing and weakly opposed voters. Um, and the intuition here is that when it comes to voters who always go to the polls, a machine can only gain additional votes by bribing swing voters or opponents. Constituents who prefer the party sincerely will vote for it, will turn out and will vote for it anyway. Um, <clears throat> getting a certain voter who's a weak opponent to vote for you is especially valuable. It in effect nets the machine two votes by producing a vote for itself and depriving its opponent of one vote. Now, in turn, among potential voters, the party begins by targeting loyalists. So here's your core supporter result. And here the intuition is that the party has, has to pay relatively small bribes to get out to the polls voters whom, uh, who, who favor it on ideological grounds. It will have to pay a larger bribe to compensate voters who like it less on ideological grounds, both in, to turn it out uh, in the first to turn out in the first place, and to compensate for the disutility of voting for a party that's anathema on ideological grounds. So we expect parties uh, to machines to prefer two strategies. Um, one we call mobilization, which is tur turning uh, turnout buying of loyalists, and the second is what we call persuasion, which is vote buying among swing voters. they should steer away from a wasteful policy of the persuasion of loyalists. So if you have, um, you know, voters who are certain to turn out to vote and who are strong supporters of your party in ideological terms, you're wasting your bags of rice and your building materials by spending money on them. So just mention a few other theoretical results. The more difficult it is to observe defection, the more, uh, the more mobilization, the less persuasion. That is, the more parties are focusing on getting people to, to turn out to vote and less on getting them to vote for the party. So um, with the secret ballot, it doesn't eliminate clientelism, but it should, all else equal, shift uh, parties toward mobilization and away from persuasion. Um, Another result, the lower the cost of voting, the less mobilization and the more persuasion because reduced costs increases the number of, of certain voters. So, for example, that gives us expectations of what, what might happen under compulsory voting laws. I'm going to talk very briefly about two pieces of, uh, two empirical studies that we've done. Um, one of them is from Argentina. Um, it involved a random sample survey in four provinces in which we, um, in 2003, soon after a, a national election, um, we asked people, this is of voters, um, during electoral campaigns, party operatives and neighborhood political leaders often give people goods or assistance. In the last presidential campaign, were these items distributed in your neighborhood? Um, so that provided, a, the answers to that question provided a 
dependent variable. Um, we gathered information and, and we asked people, did, did they receive any of these items? Um, and um, we asked a lot more questions about what they had received and from what party and the like. Um, but we also asked, um, gathered information about their ideological um, uh, predispositions, their, their, their party preferences is more to the point in Argentina. Parties are not very ideological there, but they're very strong party identities. Um, and we also asked um, about their voting history to get a read on how their propensity to turn out to vote. Um, and the results were mixed for us um, from, the, from our theoretical perspective. Um, what you can see here is that um, certain voters who were also strong supporters of the party um, received a um, uh, you know received benefits um, that um, the probability of receiving a reward rose from six percent among certain voters to ten percent among potential voters. Notice that these are not very large numbers um, in the electorate, but that's a you know more than half again increase. Um, for non-supporters, the probability fell from 3% among certain supporters to basically zero among potential voters. So a voter was most likely to receive a handout if, if he or she was a machine partisan who was in danger of abstaining, and least likely if she was, if she was an opponent who, uh, who, absent an inducement, might stay home. So, so far, so good. The anomaly is that certain voters who are also supporters um, uh, received... Um, payments and they receive them in um, to a degree that we that we wouldn't predict theoretically. Um, so here's where reality begins very ungraciously to fail to conform to our nice model. Now, one of the one of the thoughts we had about the problem this this may be due to measurement problems. And basically, the problem is our theory <coughs> tells us that we need to to find out whether voters are certain or potential voters and what their ideological or partisan affinities are before, in a sense, they've received any kind of benefits. And the questions are not really probably getting at that. They so you might say that you know I'm I I love the the Peronist party, um, but you might say you love the Peronist party because for you know the last five elections you've you've been uh, getting benefits from that party. So what we really would like to have is a kind of pre-distributive read on <coughs> party affinities, ide ideology, and propensity to turn out to vote. Um, we did research in Venezuela that was intended to deal with this problem of, of endogeneity and, and measurement error. Um, as you know, in 1998, Hugo Chavez was elected president of Argentina. He had a military background and no really elaborate deep party roots. In fact, the 1998 election represented a kind of breaking point where the traditional two-party system in, in Venezuela um, fell apart. Um, in, uh, in 2002, it's difficult for people to remember this, but he actually was, was relatively unpopular. Oil prices were low. Um, and there wasn't much in the way of social spending. Um, certainly no kind of machine apparatus was in place. Um, in 2002 and 2003, there was a coup attempt and then a general strike that focused on the oil sector. So it was really sort of dog days for the, for the regime, for the government. Um, in 2004, Chavez called a referendum. There, I'm sorry, there was a referendum to recall Hugo Chavez. 
And there was also a referent, uh, there, so you could sign, many, many, many Venezuelans signed petitions uh, calling for the recall of, of Chavez. In response, the Chavista supporters called for a referendum to recall uh, opposition deputies in the national legislature, and you could, as a citizen, sign a petition to get rid of, to, to recall these deputies. Um, and um, so people had the opportunity to sign a pro-Chavez uh, petition, an anti-Chavez petition, or not to sign any petition. Um, in 2004, 2005, there was a big increase in social spending, um, partly to sort of try to re recover some political momentum um, by the government. There was a series of so-called misiones or missions um, that involved subsidized um, subsidies to grocery stores, literacy campaigns, scholarships for, uh, for high school dropouts to finish high school, and the like. And there's been a perception that these programs were deployed at least in part in a clientelistic manner, although I have to say that I don't think we know very well whether there was much of a quid pro quo involved or if this was just more kind of sort of distributive politics. Um, so the, what makes this whole situation you know, awful in reality but wonderful for social scientists is that the government put together an enormous data set uh, uh, that was publicly available. You could buy it on the streets of Caracas, a CD, that had 12,000 observations, 12 million observations, excuse me, that listed people's names, where they lived, um, their cedula number, sort of like their social security number, date of birth, gender, um, and whether they voted, whether they signed the Chavez petition, the pro-Chavez petition, the anti-Chavez petition, or didn't sign, or they were abstentionistas, they abstained from signing anything. The pro-Chavez people, the people who signed the, the petition against the deputies in the data set were called patriots, and the um, people who signed the anti-Chavez petition were called oppositionists. Um, so this is awful big brotherism, but it's a kind of a, a, and political intimidation, the fact that this was made public. But um, it also, you know, gave us an opportunity to, to try to get around these problems of endogeneity and measurement error in our studies of, of, of clientelism. Um, we needed some additional information that wasn't available on the, on the data set, especially controls for income, which could be a confound. So we actually did a, ran a, a survey um, and uh, generated our own data set, which then, because we were um, allowed to, by the not very strict Yale IRB, to ask for the last digits of people's identity numbers, we could match them on the MySanta data set and get a fuller picture of, of who these people were and what their socioeconomic situation was. So um, it's all very lovely, except to make a long story short, our results were very similar to what we found in Argentina. So, um, you know, here we have um, core voters, people who signed against the opposition, and they're also described as not, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke earlier. Abstentionistas has to do with the perception of the government of uh, whether this person is an active voter uh, or not. Um, so these are people who we can call certain voters, you know, probably with some slippage, but they're seen by the government, um, probably more to the point, they're perceived by the government as um, not abstainers, and they are core supporters. And you can see this is the largest category of people who, um, I should say the MySanta data set also uh, had information about whether they, these people had benefited from these social programs. Um, so I'm just going to finish up by mentioning a couple of ways in which we're trying to 
resolve the tension between the theory and the empirics, it, we thought maybe it was a, an issue of measurement error. This research, the Venezuela research, makes us think it may be more of a theoretical problem. Um, one of the ideas that we have about how to sort of um, uh, change our theoretical thinking is that the monitoring of voters by party, by machines, and the uh, ideology of the voters or their party affinities could be systematically linked. That is, it might be easier for machines to monitor the, the voting behavior and the turnout behavior of people who are their core constituents than people who aren't. Um, and that could help explain why core constituents appear um, frequently as, as re recipients of these goods. And I think this sort of edges a little bit back to the Cox and McCubbin's um, uh, risk reduction sort of a, a, approach. Um, another way to think about this, and I, I, I think this is the direction maybe we should be going, is that we sort of need another term in the voter's utility function, and that term would have something to do with valence shocks. So um, voters care not just about ideology or about party affinities, and they care not just about payments, but their votes are also subject to positive or negative shocks, depending on how the economy goes under a certain incumbent, um, scandals and the like. Um, and if their party in power presides over a bad economy or is scandal-ridden, this will, will reduce all ideological types' propensity to vote for that party. So you can sort of think of this as kind of shifting the, the whole set of, of types kind of over. So then loyal voters under a bad valence shock become much more like swing voters. Um, and so parties that want to kind of hedge their bets against those kinds of shocks over the long term would be um, prone to um, spend money uh, in anticipation and also retrospectively on those kinds of core, con core constituents. Um, but let me just end by saying I'd be very happy to hear your ideas about, about how to, to resolve that puzzle. Thank you very much. In the back there? Yeah. Uh, I know very, very little about questions, so excuse me. But um, uh, I'm from Japan, and from my personal impression, politicians uh, by uh, network of voters, mm -hmm. not individual voters. I once heard that when a campaign office hires one person, that one person brings 100 Maybe a pain that certain loyalist voters is not a waste of money if uh, loyalists can actually mobilize the uncertain loyalists and also persuade the opponents. Right. Yeah, I mean, what you what you raise, I think, is an important point about the the role of political brokers in in the in, in machines in in, uh, in political machines. Um, the theories that I've been describing sort of pretend as though political party elites and brokers are one and the same. Um, in fact, the structure of these parties is that that you have a political leadership, and then you have brokers who are the ones who they're the sort of the ward healers in the American terminology. They're they're the ones who are are located locally, know their neighbors, know their likely voting behavior, know can can distribute goods to them, 
Um, so they have a kind of information advantage over the party leaders. The party leaders, in a sense, purchase their their information services and um, and the the objectives and uh, and um, and interests of the party leaders and the brokers are not identical. So yeah, I think it's often the case that the party leaders are giving are extending. Um, resources to brokers who are very much party loyalists in ideological terms. Um, but then the question is, how is the broker distributing resources among the voters uh, whom he or she is responsible for, for, for monitoring and mobilizing? And there you get into these tricky issues of you know, not wanting to waste your resources on people who are going to vote for you anyway, um, but on the other hand, some sort of intuitive logic to paying people who are who are your core supporters? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know, if you were going to be very um, technical about it, of course, from the voters' perspective, it it it, it doesn't change the, the, their their vote doesn't change the outcome of the election. Furthermore, in programmatic politics, you know, sort of by definition, the the vote doesn't you know voting for or against the party doesn't isn't doesn't condition whether or not the, you receive the benefit. So there's a kind of a disconnect between the kinds of incentives that you have as a voter in a in uh, uh, based on you know paying attention to programmatic appeals and the power of these clientelistic targeted appeals. I mean, you know, in a sense. Um, so if you if you have voters who object to clientelism and are clients, it's they're not sort of telling you with their willingness to participate in this exchange that they actually are you know that that, that it's, it's worth it to them to, to not have programmatic politics. It's just telling you that there's no targeted benefit coming from participating in programmatic politics as a you know so so I could desperately want a you know a, a party that promises unemployment insurance to win and yet vote for a party that doesn't have any you know credible ability to carry that out um, because it's paying me a, a, a small benefit. And so, so, again, this goes back to the question of turnout. That, um, we do have evidence that when uh, countries move away from clientelism and machine politics, so, for example, in the U.S., when the Australian ballot is introduced in the 1890s, turnout goes down. And it goes down in particular among the kinds of people you would have expected to be mobilized by, cli- by, client- by machines, uh, poor people, people in rural areas. Yeah, in the back. I'm sorry, say that again? Vote rigging. Vote rigging. Because most of them are like, let's say, 
You know, so if you have an effective machine, I suppose you shouldn't have to do that, right? I mean, this is one of the reasons that you might turn to clientelism. You um, would prefer, for whatever reasons, not to have to go to the lengths of actually um, engaging in out-and-out in out vote fraud, or you might not have the technology to engage in out-and-out out vote fraud, but you can nevertheless use um, resources to circumvent a kind of normal electoral process. Um, it's certainly the case that there are parties that use a mix of strategies um, that include clientelism and fraud of various sorts. The PRI in Mexico did that for decades. Um, and there are parties that mix clientelist strategies with programmatic kind of strategies. In fact, I think it's rare to find a party that would be p sort of pure machine. Maybe there are such things. But, you know, usually they have, they have to say something about what they, what they plan to do in office or make some kind of noises about what their class, you know, orientation is and the like. Um, uh, but what you, what you um, yeah, so they, I see them as alternatives, I suppose, that sort of fraud of various kinds and clientelism. Yeah. I'm a Okay, I see what you're saying. So the same kind of party structure and organization that facilitates clientelism can also facilitate fraud. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. To follow up on that, two couple observations from, I'm a, not a political scientist, I'm an academic lawyer, so. Um, one thought on the model, it seems to me that there might be a lot of factors that would go into a party's decision about how best expend money with the goal to win. Mm -hmm. which would have to do with um, cultural and institutional constraints on their operative environment. I think that follows up on the last question. So that, you know, a preferred strategy might be the easiest to vote by, might be direct to voters under certain circumstances, but if that has a high risk of detection mm -hmm. or a high cost of detection, you might say, well, I'll pursue the second yeah. best strategy in terms of yielding harvesting votes less efficient, but it's got a, a better risk profile in terms of getting caught or what happens. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and so that might factor into, when you, and when you couple that with the need to maybe use brokers and intermediaries for various reasons, partly because they know who the people are on the ground, partly that insulates you from risk of detection of the candidate or the upper level. Folks. Right, we didn't know what they were doing. Right, right. and right. it seems to me that the, that a... I think in Afghanistan that was, that's been a... Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. I think for a model to have predictive capacity to, to, to say, okay, you know, let's kind of predict how many votes will get bought under what circumstances would need to have, yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of variables. Um, Let me just say, I, I don't disagree with that. On the other hand, um, you know, I, I think that the enforcement, uh, the, the, so most countries, most democracies have anti-vote trafficking laws. Um, some are, well, Argentina, it's illegal to buy votes but not to sell them. Um, most places it's illegal to do either. Um, 
And as you can imagine, there's an enormous variation in, in how regularly these things are enforced. Um, but I tend to think of the enforcement, the laws to begin with, and the enforcement of them, the degree of enforcement of them, as sort of endogenous to this process. That is, it's the political class that is deciding what kinds of institutions we're going to have in place. You know, making decisions like, you know, do we um, have courts that enforce these these rules or do we not, um, or do we have um, you know, balloting systems that make it relatively easy or difficult to carry off these kinds of... So for example, Argentina, they have party ballots, which means that the political parties actually produce the ballots. So you have, you have secret voting, but you don't have the Australian ballot, and that facilitates vote buying because one of the things that parties do when they canvass is to actually give out ballots, which you can use to vote, that's not the only way you can get your ballot. You can also get it in the, in the, the voting booth. Um, but colloquially in Argentina, people des do describe these ballots as votes, which is sort of an interesting, you know, elision. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think at some level, it's the question is not sort of do these laws get, get enforced, but when is it that the, the political class is induced to put together laws, put them on the books, and then actually have them have them have teeth. And our hunch, and when I say our, I mean sort of a large collection of people who are working on this, is that there are kind of structural conditions that lead to, to, to those choices. Things like economic development um, and the cost of machines and other kinds of institutional differences as well. But I would think just to follow up on it, that it would be even more complicated than just sort of what are the laws on the books and the likelihood of getting caught in that sense. But it would include what's the nature of the media in the mm -hmm. society and get caught in a media sense that might have political repercussions in the midst of a campaign that's yeah. very different from getting, getting caught and going to jail, which you know, is yeah. never kind of getting caught, and that that would still be, right. all those variables, variables would be a factor in a candidate. Uh, I've never heard of anyone party. going to jail over these things. Do you, do you know, I mean, maybe that things oh, happened in the US. in Indiana, people went to jail over uh -huh. buying, votes buying votes in 2004. So. government gone bad, meaning the government is doing things that we somehow think is improper to do, and maybe if the politicians are too tied to that and corrupt, they should be in trouble, like perhaps McCain or, and, you know, the Keen Five people. They, that, that was constituent service gone amok, and, you know, they potentially got, it was quite risky for them, mm -hmm. um, versus elections gone bad to the point where the government it's not a legitimate government doing illegitimate things. That's the first thing I'm talking about. It's actually an illegitimate government because the, the vote itself was corrupted, not just the government was corrupted. Mm -hmm. And normatively on that point, mm -hmm. you know, the, the thing, and this goes back to what's the distinction between buying votes and, you know, rigging votes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing, we have a, a democratic normal sort of one person, one vote, mm -hmm. and that means it's, it's vote fraud in the classic sense is at the end of the day, the 
the machine looks at the roster, sees who didn't vote, and then just stops the ballot, you know, votes people who didn't turn out and just cast ballots for them, like Johnson's machine did in 1948. Um, and so vote buying starts to the criticism of, of vote buying that says, you know, basic democratic principle, so Robert Dahl, for example, the principle of equal consideration of interest in elections, our votes count equally independent of who cast them, um, and they, they carry equal weight. Um, vote buying violates that principle in that if your vote doesn't contain any information about your policy preferences or retrospective judgments of government or what have you, um, then in a sense, you haven't had the vote taken away from you, but it doesn't contribute in the aggregate to information uh, about the distribution of preferences, and, and not just information, but pull, you know, effectiveness, that it would if you were casting your vote without, without it being put off. So it's, 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 not a, it's not identical to not voting and having somebody use your vote on your behalf, as you're describing, but it's similar in that your vote is not being, you're <coughs> losing the equality of, of, of the of election. So the quality of the equality. Equality. <laughs> Let me just say one, thank you very much for, for your comments. Um, the media, so this is a, a, a it's, it's, it's a point well taken. I think one of the, um, this goes back to the question of sort of the relative cost that I think Marcus was asking, the relative cost of vote buying versus other kinds of strategies, um, all else equal, you know, access to broadcast media reduces the cost of programmatic strategies, right? You can, you know, the radios are introduced in Turkey in the 1950s and Turkish political parties could communicate directly with, with citizens. Um, now, the arrival of mass media is not entirely independent of economic development, so again, we have sort of economic development as a kind of a, a basic motor in this story. Um, but that's an example of a change that isn't endogenous in the, in the ways that I'm suspicious that these kind of legal legal changes can be um, because it isn't really primarily decisions of the political class that are allowing the media to, to grow. I mean, that's a, obviously a, a, a generalization, but um, it's, a, it's a more independent sort of factor. Yeah. Uh, two questions. One is I'm intrigued by your No, they as they could in the U.S. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's not quite the kind of open voting that you had in, in the U.S. before the Australian ballot came in. Um, they're not different colors. They're printed up by parties. And so if you have several elections simultaneously, which you usually do, the parties will produce um, these sort of tickets that will have, you know, their candidate for president, their candidate for governor, their list for the provincial legislature. Which you then, well, you fold it up and put it in an envelope and, and go out of the booth and deposit it and give it to the election judge. 
Um, as you can imagine, there are very imaginative strategies that parties come up with to kind of turn those, to, to, to vitiate the secrecy of the ballot with those kinds of systems. So, you know, origami ways of folding ballots and then passing them in a kind of chain um, way from, from voter to voter, um, that, that, that's right, that, that happens quite a, quite a bit. Um, I mean, it's also, it's just, it's just a crazy way to hold elections. I mean, you can imagine, so um, one of my collaborators has a younger brother who's sort of mischievous and he goes to vote and he'll just sort of randomly hide piles of, of ballots underneath other piles. Just, you know, he doesn't have any political affiliation, it's just for fun. But you can imagine the party operatives do that as well. They go in and they take them and they put them away and walk off. It, it, it's a, the, the other thing is that if you wanna, you know, what we would call split your ticket, what they call cut your ticket, you have to cut it. You have to have a, you know, scissors and cut it and rearrange things. You can do it at home because they're going around distributing these things, but you know, that's an extra effort for doing so, which is one of the reasons the parties like the system and, and uh, resist reform. Let me ask my broader question. I, I like that. I want to open up your concept of time to mm -hmm. And I heard you early on as you were sort of describing what time to fit into that. Talk about simple vote buying, where the individual voter really doesn't care about policy or anything else, mm -hmm. but is just quite willing to trade his or her vote for $20 or Whereas clientelism more broadly seems to involve the winning party delivering a government benefit to that individual. Now, do you make that distinction within your model, or do you include both of them under the clientelism? Well, in the conceptual scheme, I, which I probably kind of hammered over your heads a little bit, the, we definitely make that distinction. So the manipulation of policy is the sort of um, you know, it's, the, it's that last branch on the right-hand side, so it's non-programmatic, it's biased, and there's a quid pro quo, and it's the government doing it, it's distorted. So, you know, we only give you this social program if you're voting for us in return, whereas vote buying could be um, something carried off, often is carried off by opposition parties. The, I mean, the, the other thing I would mention is, um, you know, it's not just that you might wanna, you don't really, if you're, you're a client, it isn't that you don't care about politics, you could care rather passionately, but you um, you are also passionate about providing food for your family and um, and the temptation to trade the, the vote for um, a benefit. And let me say that a lot of this is not the sort of, you know, it happens before the election and then the relationship dissolves. It, these are ongoing relationships of dependency between the residents of poor communities and the parties as they've networked these communities. And so these residents are reliant for access to jobs and information about jobs and information about sources of benef other benefits that don't even come from the parties as well as direct benefits from the parties. The, you know, to make this point, my graduate students about sort of diminishing marginal utility of income and the, and the fact that this is gonna be the poor people or clients, you know, we asked people in one of our surveys, you know, tell us all the stuff that you were given and we got this long list including um, you know, eyeglasses, medical, prescriptions, chickens. Um, and I said to, this to, to these students, you know, you and I would not trade our votes for a chicken. And then the graduate student's response is, you have no idea how small our stipends are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so, I'm still um, puzzling over what the norm I'm violating in the 
seller is violating a norm so much as the buyer is contributing to a system in which the sort of equality involved in, in, in votes, in, in the weighing of votes, in, the, in, in elections as collective moments in which we sort of see how everybody is thinking about politics and public affairs. Um, so it isn't, the vote seller is sort of stuck, but the vote buyer is, you know, part of a system that vitiates elections as, as uh, moments of, that, ex, you know, instantiate the principle of equal representation of interest. But it, it's not only the latter that's problematic, right? I Yes, and I, there are a couple of different ways of thinking about that. One is um, this, you know, criticism that comes from equality. Another comes from efficiency. So there's a there's a kind of a law review, um, you know, people like Posner and so on who say that this um, can allow for imposition of big externalities. Um, and there is a kind of, as I say, a problem with e equal consideration of, of ballots and the sort of voices of citizens in the in a in a political system. Um, I guess that's what I'm not seeing. So I'm in a different vote. How, how is how does this itself I vote? Um, why is this a violation of equal consideration of ballots? I can imagine the efficiency argument going through it. It's just it's my part it sounds as though there's a view of what my interest should be. Um, you know, it's partly just the selling of, of votes means that those who sell their votes aren't communicated. So it's a, there's a, a, you know, this is the way it gets argued at least, and I, and I think it's fairly persuasive. There's a, there's a public benefit, there's a collective benefit to a polity of having um, the, the full array of opinions and preferences expressed in elections. That, that doesn't happen when a subset of the electorate is turned into clients. Add to that the fact that they're at the low end economically, and that becomes doubly a problem of, of violation of equality. Um, and then, I mean, you know, so there's also an argument having to do with um, the ability of elections to be used as tools of representation or, or of, of inducing governments to be responsive. So think at the limit that, let's say we have a kind of retrospective model of elections, and basically it's, a, it's sort of a, um, a um, Fiorina kind of thing where you, you know, you set some standard, and if the government, if the governing party has gone above it, you vote to reelect. If not, you vote for an opposition. So, um, you know, as Bernard Renan and others have pointed out, and you know, Madison for that matter pointed out, the anticipation of future retrospective judgment of voters can induce current governments to be responsive to the interests, preferences, needs, and so on, voices of voters. Imagine at the limit that everybody in the electorate is their vote is bought, so it doesn't matter what the incumbent has done. They can make a complete mess of things, and they can still be reelected with 100% of the vote. So then you lose the ability to 
use elect you know elections no longer become a moment of um, a tool for for enforcing responsiveness or representation. You didn't like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, it's it's tricky because ultimately we're on a little bit of a slippery slope and we have to draw a line somewhere. But because it seems that we ought to be able to distinguish the situation in which voters exercise their franchise irresponsibly. We don't like it, maybe for self-interested reasons, economic reasons, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a valid election right. under the system versus a system in which um, ballots were counted that were not entitled to be counted. Yeah. And it seems to me that, that at, at a core, again, if certain conditions are met, a bought vote is like a coerced vote. You know, if a, if a machine has you know, and maybe this happened in some of the African elections recently, where you know, with with weapons, they go to villages and they say, "You will vote these ballots, or else we'll chop your head off." Mm -hmm. um, so you're saying there's a range of coercion, and yeah. vote buying is a kind of mild version. Of it. Exactly right. I and don't it disagree with that. a certain that. line at which point the ballot itself has become tainted and it's not yeah. eligible. Absolutely. I, I should have said right at the beginning of my talk that the the, the subject that my colleagues and I, are, my collaborators and I are really focusing on is um, clientelism in democratic systems. So we're sort of assuming that in other ways these are, you know, democratic governments and the elections are short of, you know, we wish there wasn't vote buying clientelism, they're free and fair elections. Um, and that's an arbitrary line that we're drawing. It's, it's, um, and it isn't at all to say that this exhausts the range of things that one might not like about how elections happen or the, the use of coercion in elections. So I don't disagree with that at all. And, and I, sh I hope, you know, don't read me as saying this is, you know, the ultimate in coercion. Um, it's obvious, clearly not. No, and, I, and things are normatively interesting even if they fall short of coercion. I mean, there's a concept right. of corruption that doesn't go to the extent of voiding the ballots that they don't aren't entitled to be counted by saying that, okay, this is not a good thing for a system to have. So. You know, again, there have been allegations of this, you know, for all, and certainly in the United States, with, you know, one of the allegations somehow Jefferson, you know, prevailed in 1800 with a senator from Delaware, ultimately traded his vote, you know, for a promise that Federalists were going to get a certain amount of patronage in right. the new Jefferson administration. Right. Did that void the election? Probably not. Yeah. Was it ideal or completely non-corrupt? Probably not at all so. And so where yeah. you map these out is, yeah, and there's a there's a rich, um, small but I think very rich, very interesting law review literature that that makes those kinds of comparisons. So it's sort of vote buying in different kinds of electoral contexts. You know, elections of the kind we've been talking about, corporate boards, um, legislature. You know, law rolling in legislatures, and there are all kinds of distinctions as you can imagine that that are drawn. Um, so basically, you know, vote buying in elections is generally deemed to be sort of um, bad on all the different criteria that, that, that have been generated, efficiency, equality, alienation. Um, I would add the uh, inducing governments to be responsive. Whereas the judgments on other, you know, in other ways are, are more nuanced. So log rolling doesn't get, in, in legislatures, doesn't get quite the same treatment and on corporate boards as well. Yeah. Paying them to turn out to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
it's, it's um, you know, it, it's an interesting question because it goes in the opposite direction. One would think normatively, I mean, we think participation is a good thing. We do allow parties, and so in this country, and advanced democracies often allow, you know, we raise the costs and then allow parties to do things for voting and then allow parties to do things to reduce those costs, which probably would be better if we just didn't raise the costs in the first place. But, you know, so this is a, it's a different terrain in a sense. Uh, you know, I, I think the problem with, with the argument for, you know, it doesn't matter if there's clientelism or vote buying if it's just to get people to turn out to vote, is that in the voter's mind, it's very difficult to disentangle they're paying me to turn out to vote from they're paying me to vote for them. You know, so um, do I really go to the polls? You can imagine the kind of psychological pressure, maybe it falls short of coercion, and, and I'm sure it's not 100%, but you know, you would feel pressure to do so. You wouldn't design a, tr a voter turnout program that entailed p individual parties paying people to turn out votes. You, what you would like to do is have maybe, I mean, there have been proposals to pay people to vote. We paid them to engage in jury duty, why not? Um, but usually the idea is that you would have a, a, a nonpartisan entity that would be in charge of that. And then in that case, we're not anywhere on the scheme that I was describing. A raffle ticket, I think, was the, was Arizona that tried to do that a few years ago. Um, yeah, it's just that once you, once the party has that tool in its in its arsenal, it you know do do you trust it to not be um, using it in a in a in a way that pressures voter if, voters if not coerces them? I mean, it, it just seems to me a very roundabout way of getting people to turn out to vote and runs serious risks of being simultaneously a turn out the vote and a vote buying um, uh, activity, at least for some subsets of voters. Maybe. I mean, the C could be negative or positive. I'm not sure it makes that much difference. It's more expensive if you're paying them. It's okay to drive No, they are, and I think you know, hauling is is something that is probably does contain the subtle mes message of you know we're giving. I mean, you know, in the election sphere last year, I knew all kinds of people who were um, driving people to polls, and they were very explicit about you know I'm not going to take you to the polls if you're not going to you know vote for my candidate. You can imagine in college towns who that candidate was. So um, yeah, um, I mean, there's so many ways that you can reduce that C term short of giving parties the ability to, you know, potentially buy people's votes that I think they're, it's better to do it that way.
evaluation. And the, the other aspect is, um, I remember in some of your earlier research, you talked about social programs. If I poverty, if I'm, if I recall well, or some people associated with the work as a way to ameliorate the costs of economic reforms in Latin America. Mm -hmm. It seems that uh, now we are moving towards the um, agenda where social programs are not to deal with the costs of economic reform, but this problem of what we buy and buy. It was, uh, being from Mexico, I was very uh, interested in how you still refer to the pre vote buying, but don't mention anything about the hand who are controlling now the social right. programs against poverty and so on. Right. So I just wanted to, to see what you thought about Yeah, that. it's an interesting point on uh, your first point on, on Venezuela. I wasn't aware. So the the coding by the government on the MySanta data set as, um, as patriota, you know, or op opposition, that was based on signatures. Now, you, what you're saying is the abstentionista <coughs> is coming from information from electronic voting. Could well, be. I, I was wondering if you had any information yeah, I don't know. because the election was a great deal Tells you, or, or it tells the government who is voting against, voting against you, the name, address, telephone number, and everything you have the registration yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's true, but I, it's, it's a great question, and I'm going to ask my, my collaborator, who's the Venezuela expert, which is Thad, Thad Dunning. Um, yeah, on the, the pre, so the, this is, you know, in a sense, it's a, histor it's a historical reference. The pre was one of the famous, you know, sort of vote-buying, clientelistic parties. Also, in line with the, some of the questions, obviously a fraud, a, a party that was very um, prone to carrying off plain old electoral fraud of various colorful sorts, um, you know, sort of true to good Chicago traditions. Um, the, what's interesting about Mexico, I'd be interested to know if this accords with your view, but the research seems to suggest that there's been a real shift away from the use of social programs for clientelistic goals by the PRI, beginning with the Cedillo administration with Progresa, um, where there was a, you know, so this is kind of the original conditional cash transfer scheme invented by Santiago Levy and implemented under CDO, and they seem to be excruciatingly, you know, meticulous about making sure that people understood that there was no quid pro, quid pro quo and that they were free to, you know, vote as they liked, so much so that on the backs of the checks they received, there was embossed, you know, sort of a, a message saying your vote is free, this, um, this money is not transferable for a vote, and so on and so forth, sort of public relations campaigns um, as well as actually not using the, the, the program in a clientelistic or in a discriminatory manner. And, um, you know, sort of why a party that has the history that it had jumps over to this kind of um, behavior, this sort of, you know, programmatic policy is a, is a very interesting and puzzling and important question to answer. I think something similar has happened in Brazil with the conditional cash transfer programs of the the Cardoso and then Lula administrations. So we kind of have before our eyes, I think, instances of, of countries shifting 
away from clientelism, not entirely, not all parties and not all kinds of programs, but it does seem to be happening. It's happening in the, you know, the two wealthiest um, countries or the two biggest economies. Um, the arguments of Mexicanists point toward the growth of the middle class in Mexico um, and the rejection of clientelist practices by the middle class, so that, so that the PRI had to it, it did better in elections in the short run by producing good economic outcomes. But by producing good economic outcomes, you know, for a number of decades, it also changed the class structure and built a middle class that then turned around and rejected the PRI and its, and its traditional methods. So th there are important stories, I think, to be told about, about political change and client, the decline of clientelism in those countries, as opposed to Argentina, where I think what we've seen, at least over the short term, is... The, uh, uh, you know, you had the, the, the traditional kind of working class oriented party, the Karenist party, shifts away from its traditional program, kind of workerist statist program in the 1990s and compensates for a potential hemorrhaging of voters, of working class voters, by ratcheting up the, the level and energy of clientelism. So there you see things going in a different direction, at least for, for a short period of time. on my left now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much.